Hello and welcome to the Android Central podcast for Thursday, May 2nd, 2019. We are back after a brief break uh, to uh, to stretch our legs and uh, to just wait for the entire industry to implode, apparently. Uh, so to talk about that, I have uh, two experienced gentlemen here. Uh, Andrew Martinick is, uh, is somebody you know, because he's, you know, here every week. How you doing? I'm doing just fine after coming off of this cold, which you can probably still hear lingering remnants of. But I, I appreciate you calling me an experienced gentleman without saying in what <laughs> respect or anything just like that. Like but in I'll general, yeah, you're you're just uh, that's going just on a, my business uh, card next time we refresh. Just a scoundrel is what you are. Yeah, that's all uh, right too. And, uh, and and speaking of scoundrel, welcome back to the show, David Ruddick of Android Police. Uh, you are you are welcome. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm I'm doing well, and I do feel very welcomed. I, I think I got a scoundrel's welcome. Good. Yeah. I don't know what that is in the 21st century. I know that the in the 19th century, I th- I think that that meant you you got uh, your your throat slit. But um, you know, I've been watching a lot of Game of Thrones, so there's been a lot of see. throat That's slitting factoring into that for sure. Yeah. Uh, I actually I had a dream about Game of Thrones last night, which doesn't usually happen when I get into a show. It's it like crossed into my, into my subconscious. Um, I don't know if I was in the show. I can't really remember, but it was very visceral. Um, and there was murder. So, uh, yeah, this, this, my whole life right now is basically work and then watching Game of Thrones. So it's, uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting contrast. But um, both things sound very stressful, honestly. It's a very stressful show to watch. Oh, it is. It's it's insanely stressful. Um, and, and what I'm doing right now is like I'm I'm watching the the most recent season uh, on my own when it comes out on Sundays, and then my wife and I are watching the first seasons because she's never seen the show. And like I'm gonna eventually catch up to where we are, and then we'll just watch it together. But it's really interesting watching the latter you know, in the eighth season and then going back to the first few. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, it is a very stressful speaking of stress though. Cause we, the last podcast we, we had Andrew, you and I just waxed lyrical on the galaxy fold mm-hmm. and, and we sort we sort of ended in this weird place where uh, it, we knew it had problems. We knew that it was uh, it, the, the problem seemed to be compounding day after day, but it hadn't yet been delayed. And uh, our own Mr. Mobile, Michael Fisher, had not yet uh, announced that his phone had a problem as well. Uh, it had a piece of debris stuck under the screen. Um, so we want to revisit that. And David, you have you have thoughts on it as well. So I guess we'll, 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 we'll launch there. David, what what was your take on this whole thing? How do you think Samsung handled the the delay the, the the product marketing itself what do you think it did right or wrong i mean i i think honestly they're one of the few companies in the space that's had the experience with a total product meltdown scenario and i i would have to hope that they had a lot of processes in place and i think there are a few little things that point to that being the case um I think that the the total silence in the last week or so has been very telling. I think that 
I think Samsung knows that nobody has the product in hand anymore. And so there's not any more damage that can really be done at this point. Um, unless somebody in the supply chain starts leaking something about another phone breaking, uh, which would be very bad for them. But it, as disasters go, I mean, I think they did what they had to do. And is this, does it doom the phone? Does it, does it doom the category? I know there have been both of those uh, takes shared by various outlets. I think that the, the category itself is not doomed by this. I think consumers have pretty short attention spans for, for mm-hmm. things like this. Most people don't even remember Note 7's exploding. Like, um, if you say that around someone who works for Samsung, like, duck and cover. But, you know, as far as regular people are concerned, eh, that basically, oh, there's that, oh, you remember that time that phone exploded? Oh, yeah, that iPhone? Like, that's people honestly <laughs> probably just say, it's, oh, you, there's an iPhone that exploded, Right. And it's like, well, yes, I guess there probably were iPhones that exploded. But if people don't remember these things, and especially for something so geeky as this, sure, it had viral qualities like where it, you know, people probably watch a lot of videos of it unfolding and folding. I don't think people were too interested in the product narrative as much as they were like the, the cool factor. And so I don't think it dooms the category. As a product, though, I think this pretty much fizzles the launch for the phone. Even if Samsung does relaunch it, people's interest will be just fr- a fraction of what it was when it when it initially started to roll out. And I think that's that's how all products work though, right? I think if something gets delayed uh, a significant amount of time unless there's a really really strong mass market for that product, people just stop caring. Like look at AirPower. Like it was a huge story that it got canceled, but do you think a lot of consumers actually cared about AirPower at that point? No, Probably not. I mean not even close, especially considering how long that took to eventually come to its end. I think there's there's a little bit of a difference with how short this news cycle was for the Galaxy Fold. And I I think it's really easy to argue that the Galaxy Fold name has been tarnished pretty considerably by this. But you have to wonder how wide reaching that actually that, you know, the scope of that actually made it out because this was something that happened during that original kind of review period Sure, everything about the Galaxy Fold that you can find on the internet is, you know, includes talk about or is 100% talk about the screen failing. But I I just think that had this take had this taken more of an air power approach where it was like months and months and months of this, or, you know, Galaxy Fold reviews had gone through their entire course. And then, you know, three weeks later, after it had gone through this kind of quote unquote successful launch, you had started to see this information crop up that probably would have actually been worse for Samsung because, you know, I think the, the problem would have then been the galaxy fold would have actually come out and there would have been thousands of these things out in the world. And then you would have hit this problem and you would have had, you know, more of an issue there rather than, you know, Samsung realistically got to bottle this one up pretty quickly. And I think that, you know, this is inside baseball, and I realized, you know, they were pre-production phones. I think maybe there may have been some kind of plan B element to the fact that they had that strict 10-day uh, policy of the review devices where, you know, just in case something does go wrong, well, they have that to fall back on now. And maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But I think it made it very tidy um, for them to pull them all back in. And so the question is now, what the heck 
happens when they put these things back out, presumably uh, in the second week of June, which they could definitely change or eliminate that date if they really want to. It's so far uh, in the future. It's still six weeks away now. But what happens when they put these things out? Because every single one is going to be put under an extreme microscope that would never happen otherwise if this hadn't blown up the way it did in the first couple of days. I just don't know. I mean, for as bad as it would look to cancel the whole thing, people are going to nitpick the hell out of these things. It's absolutely true. I mean, people are going to like get one and like throw it in a sandbox. And uh, it's it's just you are guaranteeing yeah, an outsized amount of attention on the potential for the defect. Like anybody who hasn't written a review is now going to spend half of their review talking about, well, is it trustworthy enough? Do we think it's actually fixed? And anything Samsung can say about anything they change in the design, anything to address it, any testing they do everybody's going to take it with a grain of salt because they already said it was fine when it came out. You know, they showed they had the video of the folding machine. And so, you know, they that was the kind of their statement about durability. Yeah, part of it was their own doing by saying, you know, it can do 200,000 folds and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the problem is that that single grain of salt, if it makes its way into the hinge, it's going to destroy your phone. Single grain of salt. I mean, that's the same grain of salt that would ruin a MacBook Pro keyboard and that has no really doubt affected sales. Yeah, um, well, Apple has that wonderful reality distortion field around it where it can just it can will problems mostly out of existence. You you don't think Samsung has has earned that a little bit at this point? Like the, you know, I, the notes, I think that the, the difference here is that uh, I mean, if we're really going to go after this the the keyboard comparison on the MacBooks, the difference is that you can walk in and like they have a keyboard replacement program and they're just going to replace your keyboard and give you your computer back. Like Samsung, this hasn't reached the level of Samsung saying like, okay, we're going to make sure that as soon as this happens or, you know, proactively say, if you have any problems, send us the phone and we're just going to replace it. Like that's going to turn into a real, um, it's going to turn into a real S show really quickly. <laughs> I appreciate you not swearing. We 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 don't like to have the explicit tag on here. After that one guy emailed us. Dun, dun, dun. Um, so, yeah, I guess so. I, I I mean the Samsung bounced back fairly quickly, both from an investor perspective and a reputation perspective from the Note Seven. And that was considerably worse, and there were far more units in the in in the field. I mean, I I know that I don't want to get too inside baseball either, but I just want to point out, like, when I got my unit, it was the same day that you guys did on the Monday, and I was given the same embargo. We had nine; it was a nine a.m. Eastern embargo, um, and and they gave me a unit, and and in Canada, we're not supposed to act; they weren't supposed to put the phone on sale until early june so it was like june 7th or so but for me i never received a hey we need this phone back after 10 days nothing like that and the reason i bring this up is that they were so confident and maybe this was just hubris on the canadian pr teams uh you know hubris on their on 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 their part but they were not thinking hey this is going to be there, you know that we need a plan B. That this is going to be a, a disaster. They were like, "We are confident that this is a finished product that you will love and you will continue to want to use." And I feel like there must have been two sides within the company 
competing with one another. The marketing team that was like, yes, we need to approach this as a fully formed, finished product that can stand on its own and will 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 have to say with confidence that it is ready for scale and mass market. And then there's the engineers who probably did not want that at all. And they were extremely hesitant to put this out in the market. And that was the biggest problem they're facing is that aside from the price, everything about this was the same as a Galaxy S10 or S9, S8, whatever, or you know, every single Note launch. They just treated it like it was another phone. It was a very special phone that did something completely unique. And they, you know, that could have maybe clouded their view of how big the problems really were. But they really did want to treat this like a regular thing. I mean, with just online orders and carrier partnerships and just a full on launch event or, uh, you know, briefings and everything like that, there was nothing particular, you know, there are always little differences between the launches, but there was nothing particularly crazy uh, or, you know, there were no caveats applied to this. They were just like, yeah, we think this thing's ready to go and we're putting it out on the market and it's on sale. That's, you know, kind of told you everything you needed to know about, you know, what their confidence level in the technology was. So my question is, uh, would it have been a better idea for Samsung to just hedge as much as possible on this and call it a preview, call it a beta, call it a a test, whatever, um, and admit that the people spending all this money were largely guinea pigs? Um, Or should they have done exactly this and taken that, taken the chance and treated it like a regular, you know, scalable product launch? I think that the strategy they took was... I have to wonder if this was a top-down initiative. I think that DJ Ka, when you know they brought up the price at the press conference, I was very surprised they did that, for one. And then they announced an exact release date, which was like shocker number two. It was very unusual in that respect. It showed a lot of confidence, um, as, as you said, Daniel, uh, Canadian hubris um, in, in kind of <laughs> Samsung's, uh, Samsung's feeling about the product. And I wonder if that was kind of DJ Ka staking his reputation on, you know, I have created the company or I have led this company that has created this product and I believe it and I'm vouching for this product. And I really did get that sense because you don't, you don't, you know, unveil a product that you don't feel is fully ready unless you're the chief executive and you don't maybe have a full grasp of all the engineering and quality assurance challenges that may come with that product when it actually launches. It may be more of that thing of here is our challenge. We will meet our goal. And we will meet our goal at all costs. Right. I think that the issues started way further back, you know, down the line where it was at some point considered, you know, it, it was some point uh, along the spectrum of quality assurance, quality control, the user testing and everything like that, that this was good enough and, you know, or, you know, above whatever threshold they set. And then from that point forward, it seems like it was just, taken as a given that like the screen mechanism and this cover on top and the hinge mechanism and everything was up to their standards. And then from that point forward, it was like never brought into consideration again that you were going to have a problem with the screen or the hinge because I I don't think that anybody at Samsung 
uh, by the time they came around to showing this thing off to people and putting it on sale and putting it in carrier stores, I don't think anybody in Samsung at that point was even questioning whether or not the screen and the hinge were all up to speed because that was taken as a given months ago, even just when they brought the thing out and demoed it at the Galaxy S10 launch event, uh, if not before that. So I just don't even think that was in the consciousness at that point. They were like, yeah, this thing's ready to go. And then somehow uh, it was determined by just a handful of people that know it is absolutely not ready to go. And the fact that, you know, like that fact is crazy. And it's even crazier when you think about the fact that that decision had to be made months ago that this was fine. Well, I think the other thing is it is kind of, you know, yeah, like you said, they're taking it as given. And I think the reason they're taking it as given is I, I forget the name of this effect, but it's a well-documented thing in institutions and companies where when you set a goal, uh, your employees will find a way to meet the goal. Um, generally, uh, that doesn't always mean that they're going to meet it in the way you intended them to. They're going to mm. find a way to meet the metric. If you set a metric, if you set a performance goal, people will find a way to reach the bar of the metric. And I think we all know how people, uh, how the employees who are direct directly work for Samsung can be. And I think we understand the company culture there is extremely rigid and extremely, I would say, tight lipped. Um, there is a sense that there is the party line at Samsung. And if you don't tow the party line, I, I have never seen somebody who works for Samsung fail to tow that party line. They're so, so on point about it. There is that sense of very prim, proper, totally on message. Um, nothing is ever wrong. Nothing is ever, nothing is ever bad. (laughs) And you just kind of have to wonder whether that culture, which obviously does come from Samsung's Korean, you know, HQ, uh, in, in a large sense, how much that bleeds into the engineering and product development and whether there were some, you know, maybe, maybe things that happened during testing and development where some people had goals, very ambitious goals that were set by people who had the power to make their lives miserable or get rid of their jobs. And they found ways to meet their goals. And because it was obvious how fast this defect emerged, just how big a problem it really was. It was, I mean, honestly, it was, it's absolutely crazy that this made it through, quality assurance testing because they had to know they had to know that debris getting under the panel could be an issue. There's no way they didn't test for it. And the biggest problem for Samsung now is that this gave uh, all the fodder necessary to all the people that thought that the Galaxy or and still think that the Galaxy Fold is just a tech demo for this screen technology. And of course, in many ways it is, but you know, is beyond that they, they could have just demoed it. They went all the way to like creating a product and launching it like we talked about. And it, it, when you look back at how all this, um, the, all this came out in such quick succession, you really do look at like, hey, this kind of was a tech demo because they only tested it clearly as a tech demo. Because if nobody, it, I just find it impossible to think that anybody inside of Samsung didn't like carry this thing around and put this thing in, in, you know, in and out of their pocket and use it in their daily life for more than two days that was required to start noticing that the, the hinge gets slightly loose and this crease starts to get a little weird and then things get underneath there and then you're screwed. I, I just, it's absolutely impossible that they didn't go through that process because 
that's just what you have to do with every single product. And that's, you know, it just gives more and more credence to the whole tech demo idea. And, you know, that's not a good look when you're trying to launch an actual product. I want to, I want to bring it back a little bit to, um, you know, the culture within Samsung, because this is, you know, what you're describing, this top down approach, this, yes, we can get it done by X date, this pushing the limits that, panned out badly for them in 2016 and you'd think structurally there would have been changes you know especially since dj co was running the show even back then um that were in place aside from hey we're putting in place an eight-step battery test right specifically designed to test batteries but you'd think from an from an a structural perspective there would be that set of checks and balances where you you you're allowed to push back against an executive team that wants you to get it done that the engineers would have more credence in saying hey this may not be up to the standards that were that that you want and maybe we should delay this a little bit more because yes it's it, it, like i think when you when we did when we looked at the um the 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 teardowns of the Galaxy Note 7 and we saw the mistakes that were made obviously the batteries were it, it, themselves to blame but it was it was largely to do with the fact that they just they wanted There's a bigger a packaging capacity problem and they couldn't get it 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 just wasn't possible at the time and it doesn't it didn't matter it turned out if it was if the batteries were made by Samsung SDI or Amperex they both had problems because the design of the phone was flawed so you think coming into 2019 there would be that set of checks and balances and yet it didn't seem like the specific battery problems translated into an overhaul of the QC process within Samsung itself on a on a larger scale and it's very interesting also because you look at the Galaxy S8, S9, S10, very, you know, uh, across that that lineup there with the the subsequent notes, very conservative updates, very smart, you know, well-planned, calculated upgrades without a ton of risks. You can you could definitely say that in terms of like new technologies, really just consistent iteration. And then, you know, which all made sense coming coming from the Note 7. And then, you know, we're a couple generations later, and then they do something crazy like this with the Fold. And I, I think that the comparison to the Note 7 in t- from a culture standpoint is uh, is very apt. Obviously, the end result is different. Nobody's claiming that this is as big a disaster. And even if even if they had found this after it was released and they had to recall thousands of units... If, as long as it wasn't blowing up in people's pockets or next to their beds, it still wouldn't have been as big a disaster. So we can say that outright. Um, and the number of units that were going to be sold anyway would have been in the thousands, not the hundreds of thousands or millions. So again, very different scale, but it is interesting. And I, and I also, like I bring it back to just like Samsung is one company and they're dominant, but you know, I also look at something like LG, which... Yep, that's exactly my, what I was going to bring up. LG has released gimmicky phones that are that are of, of decent quality over the last few years, but you know, I also wonder how a feature like Air Motion and Hand ID 
made it through into a finished product without a reason for being there. And, and you know, David, I'd like your opinion on this because, uh, you know, I haven't seen a very, outside of a few people, I haven't seen a universally positive review of the G8. And a lot of people say, well, it's good, but it doesn't deserve to be treated the same way as even a Galaxy S10. I mean, my opinion, and I had a, such a long talk with, with some somebody at LG about this um, at MWC, is that these LG's issue comes from probably business unit, where people are, LG is so focused on sales performance, which obviously they should be, but LG's approach has been so driven by their partners, by their distributors, and probably carriers, who are all telling LG, you need to do something to be different than Samsung. You need to be different from Samsung. If you want to sell phones, you know, we, we need you to give us something that is going to sell the LG phone over the Samsung phone. And I think what ends up happening is the business decisions start dictating product development where the, you know, people in executive positions are saying, I need a phone that does something Samsung's phones cannot do. And I need you to develop at least three things that the LG G8 must do that you can say for sure almost that Samsung's Galaxy S10 won't do. And that I think that's how you come up with these weird things where the, you know, the engineers obviously and the product managers, they have these ideas sitting around. They're lab testing things like, oh, that's kind of nifty, you know, and where, you know, eventually like somebody come management comes to them and they say, well, we got this stuff. And they're like, great, fine. Um, let's do some. Uh, let's do a little recon with our uh, business partners and see if they think this is a differentiating feature. And as we know, if you ask a carrier how to build a smartphone, you're going to end up with a really terrible product. So <laughs> the Galaxy L- S2, uh, you know, whatever the hell they were all called, Skyrocket, Skyrocket Mobile, and, Epic and LG. LG loves to ask carriers what they would like to do, so that creates a, a feedback loop that is, of course, good for the carriers kind of but is it but not but not good for anybody else i don't even know i mean i mean as we recognize in the end it it does it does not end up working out well for the carriers or anybody because the phones don't sell but david's point is uh very uh poignant because that's all they're doing it's like you're just scrambling to find something else and you have these people that are coming up with these new ideas and they're like does it meet a minimum threshold of like, does it work? Is it different from the other things in the market? Yes, yes. Okay, ship it. And, you know, the, <laughs> the, pro- the problem here is that we also, we're demanding that of companies as well. And LG is a perfect example where they come out with something like the G6 and we're like, good. It's like, it doesn't have all these gimmicks. It's just no frills, solid phone. But it's not as good as the Samsung equivalent across the board, basically. And so we kind of are like, okay, you need something different there too. We're asking for that too. The problem is that their solutions or the things that they find that are different are not actually differentiators. They're just different for the sake of being different. And, you know, we need or we expect that answer to be we came up with something that's actually better and more useful and you know considerably different on top of being the same or you know better than Samsung in every other respect it's a really tough ask but there obviously you know there's a big gulf between what they're doing and what we expect i, I just want to i want to finish this off by by talking about the the teardown uh, that was taken down from the internet uh, David, this was interesting because 
iFixit did a fantastic teardown. It it really showed the specific tenets of the Galaxy Fold and the hinge at work and all of the things that I I, I think make it quite interesting. But it also sh- pointed out the ingress points that were probably what was causing debris to um, find its way under the screen. And then uh, iFixit took it down and and explained that they received the phone through a partner and the partner was asked to, I guess, remove the part. The partner was asked by Samsung directly to, to uh, get iFixit to remove it because they broke an NDA. And the, the partner, we don't know who or what the partner was, could have been a carrier, could have been uh, a distributor of some sort, but iFixit clearly had a source. What do you think about how this played out and, and how Samsung or iFixit dealt with this situation? So I think that the reason iFixit pulled it down is probably my guess here is that the company that they're working with is an accessory manufacturer, probably in the case business. Like, I, I think that's the highest likelihood, because why else would they have a fold that early? Case manufacturers would have been one of the few companies that really would have needed to have one and probably have a relationship with a company like iFixit, you know? I mean, we all work with case manufacturers in this business, and we know how, like, buddy-buddy they can be with people. So that would be my guess uh, as who the partner was. I think Samsung... This is a case of Samsung being a giant, you know, international conglomerate and the left arm not knowing what the 82nd right arm is doing. And, you know, somebody, some lawyer somewhere, probably at Samsung HQ, you know, got this teardown sent to them and immediately they went looking for engineering ID numbers in all of the photos, found them, matched it up and sent it into like, you know, their their security division, got it matched up um, with the supplier and sent them a cease and desist. And at that point, you know, the suppliers probably like, you know, uh, they would be in pretty deep stuff uh, at that point. You know, losing a relationship with Samsung as a supplier in this business could destroy your business. It could just completely take you down. And so I'm sure iFixit was pretty empathetic to that viewpoint where if this supplier is saying, hey, if you don't take this down, Samsung is saying they're never going to work with us again. Um And a lawyer working for Samsung probably has the power to make that threat, even if they may not necessarily make good on it. But, you know, it will scare the fear of God into you if you're in this business and a company the size of Samsung says they don't want to do business with you anymore. So I can understand why iFixit took it down. And I don't put any blame on them because iFixit could have left it up. They could have left it up and Samsung would not have had a legal foot to stand on. Not iFixit agreed to no NDA regarding that, uh, that phone. So... I think that from a PR perspective, Samsung could have handled it a lot better. Um, iFixit has not submitted DMCA to uh, the Wayback Machine. So you can still go read the take the, uh, the teardown. It's still there. So I, I get the sense that Samsung really probably what happened here. iFixit, I, I wonder if iFixit even reached out to Samsung PR to ask them like, hey, can we, you know, handle this in a more like reasonable way? I wonder if they just, you know, were like, okay, we've got to, you know, cover our partner's butt here and we're taking it down and that's the end of it. I would not be surprised if that's how it went. Yeah, for as bad as it looks, I, I think iFixit just recognizes that, well, we can we can help out our partner and also all of the information we talked about has permeated throughout the entire internet and anybody that wants to know or wants to know in the, you know, or 
needed to know at the time for the two and a half days or whatever that was up or wants to know in the future can absolutely find all of the words and photos that they that they put up. And so they figured, okay, like this is not the hill that we're going to die on and we're going to we're going to help out the partner. And, you know, this it's extremely important for I fix it as well. If this is one of the ways that they get they get devices, you know, why, you know, why would they lose that over something, you know, as insignificant as this but i fix it wins because they get to keep it up i mean the reality is that it was there for a day or so and they also get to point people to archive.org and it's still there and it'll be there indefinitely so um you know they did their job and they did a really good job objectively explaining the pros and cons of this design of which there are many so you know they 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 did their due diligence and I guess the partner, like partners, if you know, David, if you are right, I mean, which, you know, could very well be case makers are renowned for leaking stuff early. I mean, they do it all the time. That's like, right. They, they offer up leaks. Totally. FYI. I mean, Spigen <laughs> in particular is, is a company that you often see Spigen designs leaked before the phone is, is, is available and they take pride in it to some extent. Um, and I, of, I often wonder why they do that when they have to work with the manufacturers themselves. Yeah, there's there's no way that this was, you know, like David said, there's no way this was something that went through with your kind of traditional PR and marketing people. This was like, I fix it, just did the thing that they did because this is, you know, typically what they do. They don't hold back any punches as soon as they can get a device. The way that they get devices lets them do whatever they want with them. And... You know, Samsung overreacted and any other time this probably wouldn't have turned into such a big deal. But at you know, this was happening at the exact same time that everybody was sending back their Galaxy Folds and there was all this bad news anyway. iFixit got a huge, um, you know, kind of news cycle out of, you know, putting up their teardown in the first place. This really got more attention than it, nor- than it normally would have in any other scenario. I would love to talk about the actual fact that there are reviews of this product that uh, are out there, and yet the product that was reviewed is not going to be the same one that is re-released in June or July or whenever it comes out. Um, you know, I'll end on this, David. How different do you think the eventual retail fold will be from the ones that we used? I think there are really, really two outcomes here. I think the June date is a placeholder. My bet is that there's no way this phone's coming out in June. I think that the amount of re-engineering and QA they're going to have to do on the new design just completely makes that impossible. They're going to have to re- they're going to have to retool certain parts of the manufacturing process, you know, which I assume these phones are basically hand-built. Um, I imagine like aside from the aluminum pieces and like the actual display components, I imagine a lot of these phones are put together by people on a line. Um, so that makes it a little easier to retool, but I think the amount of testing they're going to have to do is just going to make the timeline a lot longer than six weeks. If they can pull it off in six weeks, if they can, if they find a novel solution, which I, I'm not saying it's impossible, it seems unlikely. I think that realistically, if it comes back out, it'll be months from now. It'll probably be closer to Galaxy Note 10 time, I would guess, um, or possibly even after that. I, I don't think there's any way – I think it would be incredibly stupid of Samsung to try to rush so that they could beat Huawei to having the first foldable uh, 
you know, next generation vulnerable fund to market. I think that would be incredibly bad. Um, but I think the other option is Samsung tries and tries to re-engineer and decides that without fundamentally redesigning the product, which I don't think they will do, that it can't be fixed and they cancel it. I, I think that I'm kind of 50-50 on which, which way this goes right now. Yeah, I'm I'm more like 80-20 in the they they figure out how to address it somehow and they release it way later. There's obviously no way that they could release it in June and have it actually be notably different. So if they do release it in June, it's just going to be a complete dumpster fire because it's going to basically just be the exact same phone with some extra warnings to not take the the protective cover off. And that is not going to do it. And one has to assume that they are already and have been already hard at work on the second generation fold anyway. So um, especially given the lead up to the initial release, I mean, we know that the foldable OLED technology has been in the works for a decade, but the physical object that you buy called the Galaxy Fold has also probably been in development for at least two or three years, if not longer. So you have to wonder, um, at what point in the, in the past did they say, okay, this is the design, this is the, the final design that we are going with, and now we just have to tweak it, as opposed to um, th- we're, we're working towards improving or, 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 or mastering this design, um, and we're going to make changes until you know, a few months before we finally say that's enough. Like I'd imagine... Like most products, they put a stop on this design, especially most first-gen products, years ago, or at least a couple of years ago, and then they just had to finalize the components inside to, to get it to market. Maybe so. I, I just think that the, the core problem here is Samsung chose the timing it did for a reason. I, I really think the reason was it had intelligence on what everybody else in the market was planning on doing. <laughs> and they wanted to be first. They've been teasing foldables for, like you said, the better part of a decade now. Everybody knew that's where Samsung was going because that's where they said they were going. They made it so obvious with the display business. And I think they had just built it up so much inside the company that they had to be first with the foldable phone because they are the pioneers of flexible display technology. How could they not be the first to do it if they're the company telling everybody for years and years that we are the company on the cutting edge of this technology, which I'm not disputing that they that they are. I believe they are. I just have to wonder if being first to market was really what ended up being the fatal blow for this product. When If they could have waited a year... Maybe it could have been a lot better. And now that they've already lost their first first mover advantage and it kind of blew up in their face a little bit, then they need to now just to, you know, swallow their pride a little bit as much as they can and just wait it out. Let the Mate X come out and let Huawei have its own problems because it's pretty much guaranteed that that's also going to be nitpicked uh, to, you know, to the moon and back. And people are going to find all kinds of flaws in that product too. So Samsung can at least uh, revel in that. Yeah, I give the chance of the Mate X having no problems uh, 0%. That phone is going to have yeah. tremendous, I'm sure it, will, it could possibly have horrible issues. It will at least have fairly bad ones. Uh, yes. And that we will definitely save those takes for another podcast because there will be many and there will be blood. Um, we're going to take a quick break and come back to talk about Google I.O., which uh, as of this recording is five days away and uh, approaching quickly. So 
We will be right back because there is lots to talk about. This episode of the Android Central Podcast is brought to you once again by our friends at Wix. What can I say about this awesome publishing platform? Well, Wix is the place to go to build a website. Over 140 million people use it to build their websites for business and for pleasure. It's super easy to get started on Wix. You can publish for free, and there are over 500 templates to choose from. Or if you're savvy, not like me, you can start from scratch coding your own awesome website. Plus, there are drag and drop tools that you can use to make it look even better. If you haven't created a website in a long time like I hadn't, you may not be familiar with just how easy and intuitive it is these days. If, say, you're running your own business and you need a website, you can connect with your customers directly. You can add chatbots so that an AI in the background can help them uh, get started answering questions, things like that. And then if that doesn't work, you can transfer them over to a real person. Wix supports all of that. You can have voice recognition capabilities so you can navigate your website that way. You can take payments. Uh, there are store features so you can sell stuff. You can show off all of your products in a beautiful gallery. If you're a photographer or videographer, there are so many robust tools that you can use to power your Wix website. Uh, ultimately, it's just about finding the right theme because, as I said, there are so many to choose from. There are fonts. There are design effects. There are different grids and layouts. You can even code your own website if you really want to and then finish it off uh, with Wix's advanced tools. That's why you need to go to Wix.com slash podcast to get 10% off a premium version of Wix. You can start for free, but when you do, you're really going to want to upgrade. There are just so many great features. To do that, once again, that's Wix.com slash podcast, W-I-X.com slash podcast. Okay, now back to the show. So, David, you are you are attending I.O., I assume, since you're basically next door. I am. In Oakland. Where do you, you're, you're in Oakland, right? I, I live in moved? Silicon Valley now. Oh, you do? Okay, that's even closer. Yeah, yeah. Google is my backyard. Cool. So, uh, Andrew, you will also be going. I will not be for the first time since 2012. I'm actually really sad about it. Um, wow. It's my favorite conference of the year. I, I love being there, especially since it moved to Mountain View. I know that the first year was was a bit problematic. Uh, there was literally no cover, and everybody got insane sunburns. Yeah, it was a little warm. Um, but it, yeah, they couldn't also help the fact that it was like 90 degrees every day. So uh, this year, we we sort of have a playbook now. Google has a two-hour keynote on day one, then it has a dev keynote a few, day, a few hours later, or sorry, a, a, a half an hour later. Then it does uh, sessions throughout the day. Then they'll do more sessions on the Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, there's a party that always has amazing musical guests. Um, last year was uh, Justice, which surprised me because I've never I, I never thought I would see them in 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 person. The year before that was Ar 
was uh, not Arcade Fire. It was uh, LCD Sound System. LCD Sound System, yeah. Which was also a band that I thought I'd never see in person. So thank you, Google, for all of that. Um, But this is about developers, except there's a twist this year because we think, are fairly certain, that there will also be hardware. There hasn't been hardware at I.O. for a very long time. Um, and this hardware in particular, the Pixel 3a and 3a XL, which based on the leaks that we've seen, we're pretty confident it's going to be called, will be announced during the keynote. Um, we'll, we'll stick the 3a stuff at the end. because David, I, I want to start with you talking about just I.O. in general and what your expectations are. Obviously, we're going to get the third beta of Android Q., but what else are you looking forward to this year? Well, I think I.O. has shifted a whole lot in terms of what it's about, in terms of Google's products. And I.O. used to be really, really heavy on developer tools, and still is. Developer tools are still a huge part of Google I.O., and that part is there for those people who really want to learn. The education aspect of I.O. is huge. But I.O. has increasingly become a tool for Google to leverage its narrative about how Google as a company isn't just Android, it isn't just search, and it isn't just hardware products. And that's really kind of tying it all together. And the tying it together narrative, I think we really saw last year um, with all of the assistant announcements. And that's that's kind of what I'm looking forward to again this year. Assistant is really the the cutting, the bleeding edge of where Google is on consumer products. Because Assistant is virtual and it exists on so many surfaces and can do so many things Google is, uh, I think, a lot more liberal in terms of, I mean, Google's already pretty liberal in terms of rolling out betas to consumers, but in terms of just rolling out features and seeing how they work, because oftentimes they aren't like things you like critically rely on in your life. Um, and rolling them out without even announcing them necessarily throughout yes, the year as Google well. Google does that literally all the time. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see what kind of new assistant features they're going to announce, because Google's lead in artificial intelligence is really what makes it exciting as a company to me at this point. What Google can accomplish um, using AI, using machine learning and the cloud and I know there's such buzzwords that mean almost nothing to consumers. But, you know, when you look at the features they enable, like call screen, um, call screen works because of AI. And the fact is, spam calls have become a huge problem in, our, in a lot of people's lives. And I, I rely on that tool now. It's awesome. And then, of course, there's um, duplex, uh, which is in itself insane. Um, and it actually does seem to work. Some people I've read like hang up on the duplex bot when it calls, but it sounds like generally when you use it, you know, like it's designed to facilitate communication and it does so in a way that 10 years ago would have been literal fantasy. Um, and when it, when they announced it last year, I just thought, whoa, there's no way this is going to happen in the next five years. I thought, no way. This, this is something that Google's going to say works. And then we're going to see it again, like four years later. And they're like, just kidding. It actually works now. Like that uh, photos object and, removal And they're so tool. confident in it mm-hmm. that it's available in every U.S. state. Yeah, yeah, it's and crazy. And that happened really quickly. It did. So I, that's the kind of stuff I look forward to at I.O. this year. But we don't have any hints about any. We rarely do. Google has done such a good job of keeping that stuff under wraps because you don't have many secondary indicators of those kinds of announcements unless they accidentally go live on devices early, which doesn't usually happen because that stuff is usually months and months out before it's going to be public. So that's that's always what I look forward to personally. But the, the hardware side this year is going to be very interesting. Um, 
announcing a phone at Google I.O., which is basically given at this point. That's what's going to happen. Um, Google's announced events in India and it, you know, released a teaser saying, you know, something new is going to happen in Pixel um, on the 7th. And of course, that would be at I.O. So that, I think, has a really strong chance of stealing the show this year. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the I I found the earlier days, like the Moscone Center days of I.O., quite tangible. There would always be a lot of demos, a lot of products that you could touch, even if they weren't going to be available for months. You could walk away from, from a press perspective with a lot of juicy uh, material. In the last couple of years, it's really been shifting back, as you said, to focusing on developers, but also, I mean, they they debuted Kotlin a couple of years ago, and last year they they really made it in, the official new language of Android development. Uh, there there were a lot of um, a lot of sessions about AI and 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 machine learning, really trying to make make it not just about Android, but as you said, about you know making it easier for developers to build experiences on any screen doesn't matter if it's iOS Android uh, or or Android things increasingly Android Auto and and I want to talk about your experience with Android Automated uh, Automotive a little bit later um this year it'll clearly be sh- I it may not swing swing back entirely but at least there is going to be an element of like here's a phone or a couple of phones that you can touch and 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 experience um, but how how big is this 3A announcement? Like these are mid-range products that will be sold presumably at one or two US carriers. Uh, we've heard we've heard rumored pricing of 399 for the smaller one and 479 for the larger one. Um, those are attractive prices, and they harken back to the days of like Nexus four and five. So how big is these are, are these phones? They're going to be pretty big. Outside of North America, um, I guess it also depends on how the pricing works out outside of North America. But the interesting thing is that these, uh, if that is the pricing, we're talking like 400, 500, they're in this weird middle ground where we're seeing tons of competition and tons of really good phones in like the 200 to $300 price point. You think about things that are challenging like Nokia and Motorola with the G series. And then you have all these other, like, the flagships have gone super high, obviously, but we have these, like, value-focused flagships that are the, you know, your OnePlus, your high-end Honor phone, you know, et cetera, that are in the five to $700 range, uh, or really more like 6 and $700. So there's kind of this weird middle ground where it's always been kind of tough to sell a phone at about $450 because... If you're somebody that has decided that you want a cheap or value focused phone, that's too much money. You're spending two or three hundred. And if you're somebody that's going to shell out more than that, you're probably going to be on a carrier financing plan or a manufacturer financing plan or something like that. And you're happy to just go spend seven or eight or nine hundred dollars. So it's this weird middle ground. And, you know, perhaps. Google has identified that this is a potential market for them in the way that they've just completely slashed the price of the regular Pixel 3 and 3XL. And they're regularly on sale for $200, $250, even $300 off in the first place. But, I mean, 
in some ways, that's good for Google if they don't have you know much to compete against there. But in other ways, you have to look at the market and say like, well, maybe there's a reason why we don't see that many phones in this $400 range because they're kind of this weird middle ground where you're not charging enough to be able to give you high-end materials and higher-end specs, uh, but you're charging too much for people that are purely value-focused. I think there's a lot to be said for if the rumors pan out, which the rumor has been, you know, you get the same Pixel 3 camera experience um, that you do on, you know, the more expensive phones, basically. And I think if that's the way this goes, I think Google has a very strong marketing narrative they can push. Because if there's one unifying feature of phones under $500, it's that the cameras aren't good. Just, yeah. it, it is it is a universal truth. I mean, y- you could go back maybe and say like uh, maybe some like refurbished iPhones could get under the $500 threshold and the cameras are kind of okay. Still not going to be anywhere near as good as Pixel 3s. Yeah, or you could buy a Galaxy S9 today. Yeah. Which is not even close to the Pixel 3. So. Yeah, it's not. And so I think from a narrative standpoint, I think that's compelling. I think if they can push that and if they can push, you know, it depends on what they choose to cut. I think that's going to be the big question. What is different? Um, what is being removed? But if that pricing works out, I think if you, which essentially works out to for half the price of a Pixel 3 or a Pixel 3 XL, you get the same camera. And I think a lot of people have seen the camera advertisements and have seen what the phones can do. Now, whether that translates the sales, it's anybody's guess. It depends on channels. It depends on how much they pour into marketing these phones. But I do, I do agree that the uh, with Daniel that the whole the whole it's a return of Nexus in a way narrative is going to be all over the internet. That's going to be in every single review. But it'll it'll be in our reviews. But will it be in Google? Has moved so far beyond that, and and it actually it it has actively uh, suppressed a lot of those comparisons in recent years. By by consciously pricing the Pixel line so much more. I mean, even the first Pixel was considerably more expensive than the last Nexus. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, to to actively position your phone as a as a flagship and now release a. I mean, it's a very different market, obviously, and they're competing much more with Chinese manufacturers, especially in developing markets like India and China and, and Latin America than they used to be. But I wonder to whom is this or for whom is this phone uh, aimed and, and, and whether us in North America are, are seeing it from, from a, a sort of a biased perspective as, as a phone that isn't quite the Pixel 3, but it's better than a lot of the mid-range phones that we wouldn't really use anyway. The thing that is really hurting the narrative of trying to be able to talk about who this phone's for is that why the hell didn't this come out with the other Pixels? This, like, the story makes so much sense if they stood up on stage when they announced the 3 and 3XL and were like, oh, and also, like, there are these cheaper plastic versions that have the same core experience but you know they they cheaped out on the materials and a couple of the specs the fact that it's coming out now really makes it more like eh, okay we're just gonna kind of put these things out in the in the market and you know david asks how much they're really gonna try to market and push these things i just don't think that they will at this point they may have had grand plans to be able to say like 
you know, Pixel 3 series starting from 399 or something from the start. But that all kind of has to go out the window and you have to just focus on something specific, like just talking about how great the camera is um, at any price, let alone at this great price. And, you know, talk about some of the the neat software features or something that make the Pixel so great. I think that that's just going to overshadow this a little bit. And, you know, obviously it helps the brand a little bit because people have heard about the Pixel a lot and they know that that's associated with really good photos. And that's going to just be a little bit of a halo effect. But more of it is like, oh, okay, you're just announcing a cheaper plastic version of this thing six months later. Like what what gives? I, I think that so I, I think that Daniel is right that markets other than America um, are probably a big part of this and we'll see where they end up launching it. We know it's coming to India because they have an event planned there. So that's that's a given. And India is honestly one of the most like in terms of just turnover in the marketplace. It's incredible. Like, you know, uh, Oppo, some of the fastest upgrade cycles in the world. It's insane. And so like Oppo just launched their sub brand Realme there like six months ago and they already have like seven percent of the market or something crazy like it, that market is so competitive and so price sensitive, but also super hype sensitive. Like people in India love OnePlus. Like OnePlus generates an insane amount of hype in India. Even as the prices keep going up, OnePlus's success keeps increasing. So it's not strictly about price there, although price is a huge part of it. I think that whether Google's narrative there ends up working, which will be you get the great camera experience. There is no bloatware. There is nothing on this phone that you don't want there to be. Um, you get updates. Your phone will stay useful for longer than a lot of these other phones. Um, OnePlus obviously does okay there. But in the sub-$500 range, you know, there aren't a lot of phones other than Nokia's that are really getting consistent updates. And uh, we'll see how long Google promises to keep them updated. They promise to keep Pixel 3s updated for three years. So if they can do that with a cheaper phone, that would probably be a first in Android ever since the Nexus phones, I guess. So that that would make them stand out a little bit. I think that Google has a, has some branding to play on with things like uh, – I, I mean, I don't know how these work outside the U.S. or if they ever will. But some of the assistant stuff, there are some Pixel-exclusive features, um, you know, the unlimited photos and everything. We'll see if they can – we'll see what they end up doing there. But right now, I, I do think that there is something that will make them stand out, even in spec-interested markets, where – People maybe do upgrade very often, maybe don't want to be upgrading quite so often. Yeah, and I do wonder how much the software update expectation promise is really going to permeate at that lower price point. Uh, Daniel and I were talking about uh, the Android One market, which uh, for the most part uh, is at a lower price point than even these. It's mostly in that $250, $300 range. And you just wonder how much, I mean, obviously we hear from a lot of people that care about that as a feature in Android one, one of the biggest draws is that because it's on cheaper phones that would even less, you know, are even less likely to be updated regularly or for a long time, that should be a huge plus. And yet it just doesn't really take off that well. Um, Obviously Nokia is kind of the poster child for Android one phones, but you just wonder how much of a draw that is when you start to get into this value focused thing where, well, it's like, yeah, that's cool that you're going to give me updates, but like, does it have the, the, the core competencies and the specs and features that I want? Cause when I think about value, I'm thinking about those things that are in this phone right now. 
I also wonder, Google had its uh, Q1 earnings report uh, earlier this week. And one uh, one thing that Ruth Parat, the uh, chief financial officer, said was that there was significant pressure in the flagship space, uh, which affected Pixel sales. And P- Google has never disclosed phone sales at all. I mean, they they rarely make their earnings report about hardware and and even as they have ramped up their hardware output they really don't don't talk about it much because it still Still doesn't make them any money it's it's a it's basically um it's a it's a it's a rounding error when it comes to their overall revenue that said the pixel 3 is not selling well in relation to the pixel 2 we don't know whether that's a significant drip drop or whether the Pixel 2 itself didn't sell that well, but we've heard numbers 5, 10 million units. I think that's still too high. But my question is, is Google just, is is their strategy, and I, I, this is a really bad analogy, and David, you're going to be mad at me, but you know how for a long time Motorola would release the Moto X so that it could release the Moto G? You know what I'm saying? Um is it getting to the point where Google is going to bring a lot of its best features to the high end so that it can make them cheaper and then eventually release them in the mid-range? You know, honestly, I think that the question is, what is Google's strategy in bringing out these cheaper phones? Because it will almost, by necessity, kneecap itself in doing so if if it brings the larger superset of features from the more expensive ones and that's what everybody's going to point out and it's going to be a very fair point to make and i think that does like it begs the question why are you making the super premium phones then what are we getting out of that that experience that is really going to be noticeably so much better so i think that we don't have good insight into what Google's goals with the Pixel brand are. And I think that's the biggest problem, um, trying to understand why why they want to do this. Like, why would you release them six months after? I think that the reason for that is they want to give the premium, they want to give the flagship product its window. To have those features where nobody else has them, you got to buy the flagship product right now. But if you wait six months, you're going to get a lot of them. If you buy the cheaper phone, that said, you still, consumers aren't, they're not that stupid. They're going to understand like, well, no, I'll just wait for the cheaper one um, if that becomes kind of the the uh, the desire that people start to have and they start to understand that. So I, I do sometimes wonder how much the whole uh, – we always like to talk about how Google does A-B testing. Uh, and Google, I think, hates when people say this. I think they get livid when any product is described as a B test to another's A. But – Honestly, I think it's so true. They allow I, – I don't see the set of cheaper Pixel phones as complementary to the premium ones. I see them as competitors. Like they could very well eat into the premium phone sales in a real way that makes the premium phone program even more unsustainable. So I, 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 do, I do worry about that. <laughs> so Yeah, especially when you work from the standpoint of knowing that the, the 3 and 3XL, just like the 2 and 2XL, aren't selling particularly well in the first place. It kind of just creates that vacuum underneath for, you know, whatever else. And if if people are already not choosing to buy the 3 and 3XL, presumably uh, mostly for the price, you know, Google is just losing sales to, you know, every other phone that's priced underneath and is somewhat comparable. You know, you'd think OnePlus, for example. But 
Google is not only competing with Samsung and Apple in the high in the, in, in the high end, it's also competing with a maturing and slowing market in general, uh, a market that is holding on to phones longer that uh, you know where your value proposition is increasingly diffuse because every phone we were talking about how no phone under $500 has a great camera but the reality is that every phone under $100 or $200 has a decent camera uh that you can use fairly well that is reliable um and i i'm i'm curious as to the the long-term proposition of a mid-range Google phone a Google Pixel presumably this won't be the only year that the company releases a $400 phone um in the long term what what happens to that higher end model especially where right now 6 months later you get that $799 Pixel 3 for $599 yeah, this has already kind of been a thing that's permeated just with the number of discounts that have come out. Uh, the discounts on the 3 and 3XL were sooner and more aggressive than they were with the previous generation pixels, and that already kind of rubbed people the wrong way a little bit. So the existence of the 3A and 3A XL uh, in this cycle, I think, will kind of color the launch you would assume of the pixel four, if they, you know, if they don't launch another, which you wouldn't think you'd launch another mid range one, you know, a four a or whatever at the same time. And, and Google is not the only company where this is happening. Apple almost immediately discounted or at least incentivized upgrades to the iPhone 10 R because mm-hmm. despite its claims that it was the top selling iPhone every day since its launch, the iPhone is just not selling very well in comparison to previous quarters. In fact, revenue for this quarter dropped precipitously. Uh, and, and if it wasn't for increases in wearables and, and services revenue, uh, this would have been a pretty bad quarter. Well, relatively speaking, bad quarter for Apple. So I, it's, it's just like, and, and we're talking about on iPhone scale when they're selling hundreds of millions of phones a year. Google scale is just tiny, David. Like it's it's just. Oh tiny. yeah, no, I agree. And the the fewer phones you sell, the harder it is to make them in the first place. It's not it's not as though you can operate a boutique phone business. That doesn't work. There's there's no such thing. So without without the volume, you can't justify the investment. So I think this is where we start to learn. You know, is this a long term investment for Google? Are smart is making smartphones something that Google's willing to lose money on for a decade? in order just to establish itself. And given the way Google, you know, Google can be very, uh, very, it sometimes seem to have kind of a throwaway culture about products that are unsuccessful and just say, nope, we're done with it, it's leaving, um, and just start something completely new. Google can also, I think, I, I think there is more of a tendency in the Google of today versus the Google of 10 years ago to say when they are doing something that, Unless it really crashes and burns, you know, the other bets kind of, you know, everything that's not search, everything that's not advertising, I think that they are trying to say, really trying to say, we're not going to let it go unless it has, you know, a business plan where we're going to see that it's going to be profitable or we have, we have a path to get there. 
So that puts phones in an interesting situation because phones by their nature are becoming a less profitable business. And also, if you're a small player in the phone space, it's even harder to become profitable. Google has a lot of brand leverage that it can push. It has a lot of you know consumer recognition. It can offer a product that is superior in many ways to competition. It has actual merit over competing products. But like you said, the market's so mature and so saturated and people's brand preferences often so established or price sensitive, you know, that it's it's hard for a company like Google to get in there and do something. So I think we're going to see in the next two or three years what really the metal of Google's, uh, the metal of Google's smartphone, like as a business, like how invested are they in this? Does Google need to make phones? And I think it's a fair question. Do they need to make them? And it also, from an, like kind of a back-end Google accounting perspective, it's a little uh, more interesting or tougher to cut ties with it because it's part of a greater hardware effort where they're not just making phones. They have this entire hardware division making all sorts of other things uh, in, you know, Google Homes and Cro- the Google Home and Chromecast and, you know, Home Hub, Nest, et cetera, arena that are actually very popular products and are much easier to justify from Google's perspective because obviously your your R&D and development and uh, cost of goods sold is way, way, way lower on a per unit basis. And you're obviously making it up in volume and it's directly, t- you know, that part of the hardware business can be directly tied and attributed to the growth of Google Assistant and Google Search and therefore ads and therefore money. And that's in the same exact division that, is making these phones that are, you know, very critically not being tied directly to generating money for Google. It's, you know, uh, you know, in the in the red column instead. And that makes it harder, I think, to just completely uh, cut bait and leave uh, the phone business. And so it may take uh, years and years before they finally make that decision, assuming that they're still going all in on the rest of their hardware efforts. It's I think telling that other companies like Sony, LG, I mean, David, the last time you were on this podcast, you predicted that LG would be out of the phone business within a year. Um, That was prior to the launch of the G8. And we know that that phone hasn't been very well received. The company's about to release the V50. Uh, Again, another very carrier-centric phone. This was specifically built to uh, show off the 5G or nascent 5G networks on Sprint and I think Verizon. Um, But, you know, the less we talk about that, basically V40 rehash, the better. So it's interesting, like Google is positioning itself as a premium smartphone maker in a, a, a parallel to its development of Android, which is increasingly... Uh, separate from AOSP Android, like there's Google Android, there's AOSP Android. Um, I, I just, it's very confusing, especially as it integrates more assistant features into play services that are rolled out by uh, decree to every single Android phone, regardless of, of which manufacturer it's from. I think that, you know, if we want to talk about how Google handles Android in general and how it relates to the smartphone business, I think we've been watching Google decouple Android from 
smartphones themselves and how smartphones are developed as much as humanly possible in the last five years. And we've already seen rumors that Google is going to start um, probably pushing out OS updates via Play Store mechanism um, and also the potential that Google is going to start breaking up updates into core pieces um, where manufacturers can take bits and pieces of an Android OS update and um, maybe get the other ones into the phone later because they might require more work or more under the hood changes just so users can get, you know, the new API features, you know, new visible and interface features that maybe don't require the full OS to upgrade. So we've been watching this happen with Android for years, but it's just not it's not core to the smartphone experience that Google is pushing. I think Google talks a big game about, you know, pure Android and, you know, Google's Android on the Pixel phones. Realistically, Android itself is is irrelevant as it has ever been to the actual experience on the phone. Now it's all the Google apps and products. Like you said, everything in Google Play services, that's all being bundled up um, into proprietary and non-public code. So, right. I think that Google is definitely pushing that way with phones and it's hoping and we're seeing we we've seen hints of it in recent years where they just debut something on Pixel phones and say well it's only on Pixel for now and eventually it comes to everything else because yep. Google knows that if it starts holding features hostage on its phones partners are going to get very very antsy about that and I think with Duplex we've seen the first one where they've been Duplex and original quality photos uploads are the first ones where they seem to be holding the line so far where there's nobody else gets it um, at least for now. So I'll is be call screening, uh, call screenings, not just on pixels. It's on Android one now. Also. Oh, yeah. It's it. going to come to Moto and Nokia. So it's, it's definitely going to, that one they're rolling out. I would, I would not be surprised if duplex is eventually one they release from their grasp, but I would be very curious to see when pixel four is announced, what kind of features they, they start to reserve. Because I think honestly, if you're Google and you are trying to grow the smartphone business at all costs, you do start, you you have to start siloing features away from your competitors because if you just give everything away, what what value is there in your product compared to everybody else's? Yeah, you can continue making deals to bundle, you know, launchers with the Google feed or um, the messages app and and whatnot. But those are such small potatoes uh, when it comes to their core business model of of you know showing you as many ads as in, in as many places as possible. Um, you know, I, I just, I wonder Google maps, for instance, just that's on every Android phone. And that is a much more important product to most people than call screen, maybe not call screening, but something like duplex. Um, and it's just, for me, like Google photos, the integration of photos into the OS, into the, you know, I don't have to think about it. Uh, I could, I could do the same on an iPhone and eventually it would upload in the background. But the integration of photos into the Android itself is one of the major reasons. It's my iMessage. I mean, when you think about the reason that I love Android, it that is in, as important to me as iMessage is to iPhone users. And every year it just gets more and more important. And and I wonder how many of those features that you know, are Android specific or Google specific are people holding on to as their reasons for staying on Android? I can't think of many. Google Photos is really the one. Google Photos has been that rare breakout Google product where I think that is definitely something a lot of people are now using. And I think a lot of people probably use it on iPhones too, which once again is because yeah. Google can't help itself. It wants the data. <laughs> it yeah. that's that's the lifeblood. And so I understand it's definitely it's that they have business units with competing interests. 
And that is something that Apple can happily say, nope, we don't. <laughs> and that's that's cough, an advantage. YouTube, cough. Yeah, exactly. So it's it it's such a problem for them. It's something that's definitely hurting the smartphone business. All right. Well, um, obviously, you two will be covering IO extensively. Um, so we'll leave it there for now. We'll have a podcast. I assume you, Andrew, will do a podcast live from IO because why not? You have to. There's no better place to do it. Uh, so stay tuned for that next week, and we'll have all of the actual announcements, including what we talked about today around the the new Pixel phones. Uh, we didn't talk about the rumored Nest Hub. We've heard inklings that that would be announced as well. Nest so Hub, a home, home super max major. Super. <laughs> it sounds like a lottery for you know the name of a lottery. It's not a product. Um, but yeah, stay tuned for that. The keynote starts at uh, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. On Tuesday, May 7th, which it'll be a lot of fun and it'll be streaming from Google's website as well. Um, David, thank you so much, man. This is this has been a ton of fun. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more about what you what you do and 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 what you say? Uh, that's that's AndroidPolice.com. Um, you can also find me in the Android Police Slack where I'm usually yelling at somebody, and um, <laughs> also on Twitter at uh, RDRV3. Um, and I don't recommend following, but yeah. Oh, I do. You, you, you are, you do you spit want hot, hot takes? takes on bring a trailer listings? Then RDR. I had so many hot takes on bring a trailer. Honestly, once Andrew showed me that they had a Twitter feed, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm hooked forever now. Like I can't, it, I, it's, it's Twitter has me locked in on so many levels. Turn on tweet notifications for bring a trailer. Boom. Yeah. I think you two should have a, a car podcast. That would be really fun. I think it would be insufferable. <laughs> yes, exactly. It would be it would be horrendous because it would be four hours long, uh, twice a week, and it would literally just be reading, bring a trailer listings, and scoffing. Yeah, pretty much. It'd be like ah, nine nine six prices. Ah, yeah, look at those headlights. <laughs> what a joke! Oh my god. Oh man, I would definitely not listen to that. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Andrew, uh, David, thank you, Andrew. Um, I guess you know, throw out your your credentials because why not? You know. At uh, Andrew Martinick on Twitter, where I also retweet Bring a Trailer links and, uh, you know, argue with other people about just about everything else. Yeah, that's also a fun a fun feed. Uh, my name is Daniel. You can find me at Journey Dan on Twitter. You can find us at AndroidCentral.com. Thank you so much for listening. Send your thoughts to podcast and Android Central. We love, love, love hearing from you. No homework this week because I'm letting you off the hook. Um, and uh, we will definitely be back next week with a live show from Google I.O., so stay tuned for that, and uh, thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.